Again, glad you guys are here. If y'all are joining us online, we're glad you're doing that as well. Uh, my name is David. I'm the pastor here at Stonebridge. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Zechariah 5. Zechariah 5. One announce, well, I guess both of these are reminders. I mentioned last week um, the seven walls of the city. That's what we call them from Isaiah 58, 12. The seven major institutions in a city that shape a cult, that kind of shape a community. And ideally, those things are used by God to bless people, whether they're Christians or not. But oftentimes, they, they don't function that way. Church, government, family, the, the um, businesses, science and healthcare, uh, arts and culture, those things can, again, ideally, those are areas where the Lord is working through to bless a people. But sometimes that doesn't happen. Um, and we want to pray. We want to pray for the people who are engaged in those different walls of the city. So if that's you, like that language may not speak to you, so you can disregard. But if it does, if you feel drawn to one of those areas of the city, and I would say particularly if you work in one of those areas, on our app or through the email that Kim sends out, there's a link to this little page that you can survey that you can fill out just to let us know. And that just, it, again, it just helps us pray as we pray through those things every week. And then uh, one thing about this, or a couple of things about this prayer walk on Saturday, I want to encourage y'all to come. I know Saturday mornings are not great uh, for a lot of you. You've got other things going on, but if you can, I'd love to see you at one or both, either here at 830 and we'll send you out to walk. Somebody asks, you don't have to wear a mask because it will be outside. And it can be as you can do it just by yourself or with your family. It doesn't have to be a large group. We're going to give you a prayer guide so you're not kind of floundering, trying to figure out what exactly am I praying for. Um, but it's a way for us to kind of get out and see what God is doing uh, in the neighborhood around us. And then with several other churches, we'll be gathering at First Methodist at 10 uh, to pray together. The mayor's going to be there to share a little bit about uh, what's going on in the city. Um, the superintendent of the city schools will be there, Grant Rivera as well, and some other leaders in these different on these different walls, they're all going to share just really brief, just a couple of minutes, and then we're going to pray just for a couple of minutes on each wall. So the whole thing, I think, should probably take less than an hour for sure. And um, we'd love you to come. If you can do one or both of those, it just, it's a good opportunity to intercede for our city. And you do need to sign up. First Methodist has a hard cap on the number of people that can gather in that uh, park. And so we want to make sure to honor that. All right, Zechariah 5. So February 15th, 519 B.C., Zechariah has eight visions. We've said that before. Today we're going to look at the sixth and the seventh, and they feel different. I think they complement one another. They go together. They're both dealing or they're both talking about how God deals with sin. So we're going to read them together and kind of look at them alongside one another, see what we can take from it. So Zechariah 5, starting in verse 1. I looked again, and there before me was a flying scroll. And the angel asked me, what do you see? And I answered, I see a flying scroll, 20 cubits long and 10 cubits wide. So that's 30 feet by 15 feet, so maybe the size of a billboard. And he said to me, this is the curse that's going out over the whole land. For according to what it says on one side, every thief will be banished. And according to what it says on the other, everyone who swears falsely will be banished. The Lord Almighty declares, I will send it out and it will enter the house of the thief and the house of anyone who swears falsely by my name, it will remain in that house and destroy that house completely, both its timbers and its stones. Then the angel who was speaking to me came forward and said, Look up and see what's appearing. I asked, What is it? 
And he replied, it's a basket. And he added, this is the iniquity of the people throughout the land. Then the cover of lead was raised, and there in the basket sat a woman. He said, this is wickedness. And he pushed her back into the basket, and he pushed its leg cover down on it. Then I looked up, and there before me were two women with the wind in their wings. They had wings like those of a stork. And they lifted up the basket between heaven and earth. Where are you taking the basket? I asked the angel who was speaking to me. And he replied to the country of Babylonia to build a house for it. When the house is ready, the basket will be set there in its place. So uh, what I see here is God's giving um, a choice to the people who've returned. They can hold on to their sin and they can be cursed, judged, or they can release their sin. They can be forgiven. It can be put in a basket and taken away from them. So just to remind you of what's been going on in the life of the returnees over the last six months. On August 29th, 520 BC, six months before Zechariah has this vision, Haggai comes, the prophet, and he says to them, the reason we're experiencing this prolonged drought and this prolonged famine is because we're being disobedient. We're not rebuilding the temple of God, which is why he brought us back here. We're just rebuilding our own houses, and that's literal. We're working on our own houses and not rebuilding the temple. Three weeks later, September 21st, the people start to rebuild the temple again. Then uh, about a month after that, early November, Zechariah gives his first message, and he says, y'all need to return to the Lord. So it's not just about, okay, now we're building the right building. Instead of building our own house, now we're building the temple. It's also about relationally our posture before the Lord. And Zechariah says, return to him. That on December 18th, 520, it's a, it, it's a huge day. God says through Haggai, from this day forward, mark it, I will bless you. It's a, it's, a, it's a turning of the page in the life of God's people. He is no longer judging them for their disobedience. He's going to begin to bless them. And now we're two months later, and Zechariah has eight visions. And the first five have all been really encouraging, we may say positive messages. The first one, God says, I'm going to move on behalf of my people. The second, I'm going to judge or destroy those nations that have oppressed my people. The third, he says, I'm going to rebuild this whole city and it's going to be huge and I'm going to dwell with my people again like I used to. The fourth and the fifth vision, I've anointed these two leaders, Joshua and Zerubbabel, to lead in the rebuilding effort. Back to the fourth vision, I've forgiven my people. And once again, they'll be called a kingdom of priests. And what I see in the sixth and the seventh, it's not, it's not necessarily, a, maybe it's a pause, a word, a reminder, maybe a warning you want to say. What I hear God saying is, these are all the things I am committed to doing. This is what I've been doing for the last six months, and this is what I'm committed to doing moving forward. All that stuff that we just talked about. And you guys have responded well. You got, you've started rebuilding the temple and you've returned to me, but not all of you. And I think what God is saying is, if you wanna be a part of what I'm doing moving forward, that's up to you. It's an invitation. You can either choose to hold on to your sin and you're gonna be judged, or you can repent and you will be forgiven and you can be a part of what I'm doing. That first vision that we looked at, vision number six, I think if you're listening to that, and you're in the, the congregation, there's a whole lot of people squirming in their seat when Zachariah says that. Remember, the, the issue, the core issue, was whose house is getting built. In both 6 
vision and the seventh vision talk about houses. And so that's gonna kind of land in your mind if you're one of these returnees. And so you have this unrolled scroll. In my mind, it's kind of like a magic carpet. It's got writing on both sides. It's going around from house to house. And if there's a thief in the house, then the curse, that's what that scroll is, says this, the scroll is a curse. It resides there. If there's someone who swore falsely by the name of the Lord, the scroll stops and the curse stops and resides there. And the punishment's twofold. The people are banished. Now, they'd just gotten back from exile 16, 17 years ago, and now they're being threatened. You're going to be cut off. And then this house that you built is going to be torn down. I think those two words, thieves or stealing and swearing falsely by the name of the Lord, those are representative. If you break one command, you break them all because the same God gave all of the commands. But also, I think there maybe it's, they're significant in and of themselves as well. Ezra 3 says that the returnees paid carpenters and masons to rebuild the temple, but they quit pretty quick. They got scared, they got intimidated, they got frustrated, and so they stopped rebuilding the temple. Ezra 3 also says that the returnees were trading with the Phoenicians, a local, uh, another people group, and they were trading with them to get cedar that would be used to rebuild the temple. And I'm wondering, just human nature being what it is, if you got a pile of cedar just sitting there and you don't have a house, how long does it take before you think, I can probably use a little of that. God doesn't need it all. You've already paid some guys to rebuild the temple, and they're not doing any work. How long does it take before you say, you know what? We've already paid these guys. They can probably help me out a little bit. I'm wondering how many of them stole, in that sense, from the Lord. They redirected resources that were for the temple to their own house. And I'm wondering if they're squirming when they, Zechariah says, on one side of the scroll is written, cursed are those who, any thieves, they're going to be banished and their house is going to be torn down. When Zechariah called the people to return to him, I imagine there was some peer pressure. I think most of the people did and maybe that felt like the thing to do. And so, yeah, yeah, I'm in. I'll be a part of that. Maybe I've got my fingers crossed behind my back. Maybe I don't. Maybe I'm just saying the words, not really sure. But it's like, this seems like a good thing. If it means it's going to start raining again and I can plant some crops, get a harvest, and yeah, whatever. And you hear that the other side is all those who swear falsely by the name of the Lord, those who take God's, it's a way of taking God's name in vain. I'm wondering how many of the 42-something thousand people, they didn't really repent. They were just kind of going along with the crowd. And God says, this is what's going to happen. If you don't repent of those sins, you're going to be judged. You're going to be cursed because of that. And then the other side, here's the other way of dealing with sin, which is you do repent and God forgives you. What do you see? I see this basket and the basket is the iniquity of the people. And then the lid is taken off the basket and there's a woman inside and she is wickedness. Why is it a woman? I think most likely because in the Old Testament, one of the metaphors for spiritual unfaithfulness was prostitution. And so I think that's why she's a woman. Women aren't more wicked than men. But there's, and she's trying to get out and the angel pushes her back in and he puts this heavy lid on the basket and two women with these huge stork-like wings pick up the basket and take it to Babylonia. Your Bible may say Shinar, S-H-I-N-A-R. 
Is there any significance there? That's actually where the Tower of Babel from Genesis 11 was built. Not the first place we see sin in the Bible, but post-flood where God cleansed the earth with water. It's, it's, a, it's a marker in terms of sin. The people said, hey, we need to make a name for ourselves." Think about how much sin in us is rooted in arrogance and pride and independence. And you see that, that the Tower of Babel, and that's where this basket is taken back, and it says they're going to build a house for it. And that word house is the same word as temple. So again, this whole idea of what's being built, whose houses are being built and what, whose temples are being built. And in Babylonia, in Shinar, they're going to build a temple to this woman wickedness, and she's going to be placed in there in this basket. To me, it's a picture of Psalm 103, that our sins are removed from us as far as the east is from the west. The two options. God is already committed to doing things. He's already said, this is what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna rebuild the temple through these two guys, through their leadership and through the people. I'm gonna rebuild this city. I'm gonna dwell with y'all again. I've forgiven you. You're restored as a kingdom of priests. I'm gonna, I'm gonna judge the nations that have oppressed you. I'm gonna do all of that stuff. You guys have already started responding you're building the right building now. You've returned to me. And I think he's saying to, to the crowd as a whole, but really speaking to individuals within the crowd, do you want to be a part of this or not? It's not a guarantee. Just because you're in the room, it doesn't mean that you're going to automatically be a part of what I'm doing. Just because you're one of the 42,000 plus people that returned, doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be able to enjoy the benefits of what I'm doing. It gets down to you and the choice you're going to make about the sin in your life. Are you going to choose to hold on to it? Or are you going to repent? He says the same thing to us. New covenant, New Testament. Big banner, I'm making all things new. That's what God is committed to doing. I'm making all things new. And that includes me and you. We're new creations. It includes the earth, a new earth we see in Revelation 21. And heaven, a new heavens we see in Revelation as well. No more death and no more mourning and no more crying and no more pain. Romans 8, all of creation is groaning and they're waiting for that day. He's going to renew everything that we see. Well, I don't know what that looks like. We talked about that when we went through Revelation. But that's what God is doing. And so the question is, do you, do you want to be a part of that? Do I want to be a part of that? Being in the room isn't enough. That doesn't cut it. He wants to know about you and about your house. How sin is what separates us from him. Are we choosing to hold on to our sin and nurture it? Or do we repent? and ask him to forgive us, and he removes it, puts it in a basket, and takes it away. This is becoming less so as our culture is becoming more secularized, but we still have remnants of this in the Bible belt, the idea that what God is looking for is good people. And you've heard that, maybe you've even thought that, maybe you still think that. If I were to ask you about your relationship with God or that kind of classic question, what do you think is going to happen to you when you die? If, if what comes to your mind and what comes out of your mouth is something along the lines of, well, I'm, I'm basically a good person. And then we usually qualify that by saying, you know, I've never killed anybody, which is a pretty low bar for being good. But that's what we say. 
like I'm Hitler. That's what we say. God does he's not looking for good people. If he was, he's not going to find any. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good or to make good people better. He came to bring dead people back to life. Benjamin Franklin popularized this phrase, God helps those who help themselves. He was smart about a lot of things. He was dumb about that. God helps those who realize they can't help themselves. That's what he's looking for from us. An acknowledgement that we're dead in our sins. Whatever we do that's, quote, good, it's not, it's not enough. It doesn't, it doesn't overcome the good things that we don't do. It doesn't address the bad things that we do commit. We're sinking. We can't save ourselves. We need somebody to throw us a rope. And that's Jesus. He came to rescue us, not to give us a little assist or a boost. He came to rescue us from drowning. If that's you this morning, if you're tuning in online or you're in the room, and there's a part of you, when you think about God and you think about your eternity and how those things interact, if what's in your mind is, I'm a pretty good person, you're missing the point. Hear this like lovingly. You may be a pretty good person compared to somebody else in the room. You're not a, good, a pretty good person compared to Jesus. And he's our standard. That doesn't have to crush you. It's just meant to point you to him and say, I recognize. I need help. I need a savior. I don't need a little boost. I need somebody who can pull me out of a pit. And he can do it. For many of you, you've already made that decision. You're following Jesus. And yet for most of us, we continue to kind of nurture sin. That seems like an oxymoron. How can someone who's following Jesus kind of nurture sin in their own life? But we do it all the time. And we do it because we don't think our sin is wicked. Wicked's a strong word, and it provokes this kind of emotional reaction in us. Sin is kind of bland. It doesn't really do that. We would say human trafficking is wicked. But gossip? It's not wicked. We all do that. It's harmless. Adultery, that's wicked. Greed? It's the American way. We don't recognize the wickedness of our sin. Sin banishes us. It cuts us off from the presence of God. Sin also brings down our houses. And not just the ones that we say are the big sins. Read James 3, 6, what it says about the words that come out of our mouths. Our tongues are like a fire and they burn down everything. Our words that we tend to excuse. We're great at justifying. We're great at rationalizing. Again, we look around and say, well, I'm not doing what he or she is doing. I'm pretty good. God doesn't expect perfection. I mean, for goodness sakes, we're only human. I had a friend, I still have this friend. He's, he was on the mission field for a while and 
uh, we would email back and forth and he signed his emails as holy as I want to be. I don't know exactly how he meant it, but I know how I took it. And I think about that all the time. And it's true. I'm as holy as I want to be. I'm not as holy as God wants me to be, but I'm as holy as I want to be. I'm not as holy as Jesus is, but I'm as holy as I want to be. Because I don't recognize my little pet sins that don't seem that bad compared to what other people are doing. I lose sight of the fact that those are wicked. They're wicked. And they have the potential to bring down my house. And I don't think that way. And so I justify them and I rationalize them. And again, I just, it's a bad word, but I nurture them. I certainly don't cut them off. I don't treat them with the measure that Jesus says. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eyes cause you to sin, pluck them out. Not that extreme. Come on. We none, none of us would have hands or eyes. I don't recognize the wickedness of my own sin. And so I continue. I'm as holy as I want to be. It's a heavy thing to start your week, I know. But I want you to feel guilty. What I want you to do is I want you to recognize that picture in the seventh vision. That wickedness being put in a basket and a heavy lead lid getting put on top of it and it being taken away from you, removed from you as far as the east is from the west. That's the offer on the table. Through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, every sin that any one of us has committed, will commit, is committing now, they've all been forgiven. We sang that song, dead man come out of the grave. Not pretty good man come out of the grave. Dead man, recognize you're dead. Let go of those chains. I love that picture. If I'm chained, it's because I'm choosing to hold on to them. Not Jesus has already broken the chains. It's up to me to decide if I want to walk in freedom or not. That's the offer on the table. Do I want to hold on to my sin? Knowing at some point all of it separates me from God, it can lead to banishment, whatever that looks like. It can bring my house down. Or do I want to repent and say, take it away. I don't want anything to do with this anymore. doesn't matter if other people think it's okay. I don't want to just be as holy as I want to be. I want to be as holy as you are. Whatever that looks like this side of your return. Guilt is a terrible long-term motivator. It can get you moving for a moment, but not over time. We need a glimpse of the holiness of God. Yes, we want to recognize the wickedness of our sin, but that's not enough over time. But if we see the holiness of God, then those things We can kind of see them for what they are. They lose their allure for us. Something I've been praying for the past several, several months. God, I want to be marked by your holiness. If I'm to be holy as you are holy, then I need to know what it means for you to be holy. This is not a great comparison, but it helps me, and it may help some of you who've been raised in a church setting, maybe again particularly in the South. When we think holiness, we tend to think the rules, In my mind, I think of John the Baptist. 
He wore weird clothes. He ate a really strict diet. I don't know that anybody really liked hanging around him. His life was marked by no. He was completely obedient to the 100%. He lived the life that God wanted him to live, totally. Very unique life. But when I think holiness, I think him. Here are all the things that we don't do. But we're called to be holy like Jesus is holy, not like John the Baptist is holy. And Jesus was called a a drunkard and a glutton, not because he was either of those things, but because he went to parties and spent time with people, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. There's something about the holiness of Jesus, again, that I think maybe particularly Bible Belt Christians that we've missed. And so the thing I've been saying, I've been asking the Lord is I want to be marked by your holiness, not by my sense of what that is. And I would encourage you to start praying that prayer. If you want to think about wickedness, read Romans 1, 8 through 32. And that paints a picture of wickedness. And you'll be shocked as you read it. Some of the sins that are listed as wicked. One of them is disobeying your parents. That's not, that's just growing up. God says it's wicked. And then I also want to encourage you to pray, God, I want to see you in your holiness. I want to be marked by your holiness. Very difficult to try to walk away from sin if you're not walking towards something else. Much easier, much easier once you've gotten a glimpse of, what it, of who he is and what it is to be holy as he is. I want to take a few minutes and pray. Again, I know this can be a bit heavy, but I want to remind you, you go ahead and close your eyes if you would. I want to remind you the offer that's on the table, God has already committed. He's already making everything new. He's already said, that's what he's going to do. Like that's in the books. It's, a done, it's accomplished in the sense of God's already decided he's going to do it. He's just working out the details. And we can choose to be a part of that. Sin separates us from him. And so we've got to deal with sin in order to participate in his life and in his family and in his work. If you're still on the good enough train, I want to encourage you to get off of it. Acknowledge this morning that song that we sang. I'm a dead man or a dead woman, and I can't save myself. I can't do enough good. And just ask really simply, here's the prayer. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. A sinner. And he will. Let one of us know if you pray that, and we'll help you take the next steps. For many of you, you've already prayed that prayer, but if you're honest, that phrase, you're as holy as you want to be. You got to own that. I'm not heaping guilt on your head. I'm just saying, that's not the standard. What does it look like for us to be holy as he is holy? To recognize our sin has been put in a basket with a lead lid on top and taken from us, as far as the east is from the west, removed from us, then why do we continue to walk around in chains? 
Just begin to ask the Holy Spirit, show me the pet sins of my life. I'm not talking about the unintentional sins. I'm talking about the cultivated ones. Those parts of you, thought patterns and behavior patterns, you know they're displeasing to God. But, in, but you justify them and you rationalize them. Here's a few for this I was asking the Lord during worship, what are some things that the folks in this room struggle with? I don't have names. God doesn't do that. He doesn't call people out that way. But a couple of sins that jump to my mind. One, condescension. We think, that's not wicked. It will tear your house down. Looking down on people, and I thought specifically because you think you're smarter than they are. Vanity, and it's vanity in the name of health. You're hiding behind I'm getting healthy when really what you're doing is trying to look good. You need to own that. That's, vanity is a sin. It's a national pastime. It's a sin. And it's wicked. It's rooted in a dis and a, a lack of contentment with your own body. It will tear your house down if you don't repent. And now in the name of health, we can all pursue it and feel good about it. A couple of others, I think. Some of you need to forgive your mom. You're holding on to that. In lust, and in your mind, you're justifying not your, what you're saying is you're not acting out on the lust. It's just fantasy. It's staying in your mind, and so you're thinking it's okay. You may not even realize that you don't. You may not even realize that there's freedom beyond that because you've struggled with it since you were twelve or thirteen years old. You may just think this is normal. It's not. Well, it may be normal but it's not holy. And Jesus can set you free. So Holy Spirit, would you come, would you speak to each one of us in your convicting way and in your inviting way, reminding us of this incredible offer that's on the table of forgiveness that's full and free. God, I pray for the strivers among us that I thank you for that desire to, to grow and to, to do better. But I pray in these few moments, the strivers, particularly among us, would just rest in the work that you've already accomplished, the freedom that you've brought. That that picture of their sin, my sin, my wickedness, their wickedness, being put in a basket and flown away without us having to do anything. We don't have to pack it up or anything. That would bring a deep sense of peace and joy to our hearts. We would know the freedom that you've purchased for us, Jesus, and what it is for us to live in that freedom. God, for the guilty, those who are prone to having a guilty conscience, I pray, they would hear you speaking really clearly to them as sons and daughters. Washed clean, made pure and holy. 
God, I pray for each one of us that we would not just be as holy as we want to be, that we'd be as holy as you are. In Jesus' name, amen. So we want to pray. You can come here. You can kneel or you can stand here at this altar or you can go next door if you want to talk with somebody. And if you're nervous about coming forward because you think, oh, they're going to think that I'm a sinner, well, we know you are, and so are we. So it's okay. So come forward and get prayer. Um, if you, sometimes it's helpful to confess a sin out loud. And so the people who are praying for you will have just guys praying with guys and just girls praying with girls. If you want to confess to the person who's praying with you, then you just turn around and tell them. You certainly don't have to, and they're not going to ask, but that may be a good um, step for you. And then, we'll do, and then we'll pray, and then Bo will dismiss us in a few minutes. Good? Okay, you guys respond, um, and then, uh, and if you're, yeah, j- y'all just respond. All right, thank you guys. We're glad that you were able to join us for worship this morning. Um, And and just thinking about this message and this passage this morning, I want to speak um, against a lie. The lie is that because you weren't in the room this morning, because you weren't here, that uh, you don't have the opportunity to come before the Lord, to confess your sin. That absolutely is a lie, no matter where you are right now. If it's Sunday, Um, morning or if it is a week, a month after this was recorded, this message is for all of us, that we all have the opportunity to come before the Lord, to be able to confess these sins, um, these pet sins, and bring them before the Lord. Um, I was thinking about this idea, like the the Holy Spirit just reminded me also that um, you may be in a place where you feel like, I can't actually do this. I don't know if I can live without this pet sin, or um, I'm not even sure if God's power is strong enough to overcome this in my life. And I just want to speak against that and say, absolutely, God's power and His authority to forgive you is strong enough. He desires for you to walk in freedom, and He's going to give you all that you need. So when we lay down our sins, when we put them down, and confessing to the Lord, we're also reaching out our hand. We're creating a pathway that the Lord uh, can be able to speak life, be able to encourage us, and be able to continue transforming us into the image of Christ. Um, and so we pray that, that, that no matter where you are, no matter when you're watching this video, that you would be able to take a little bit of time out, carve a little bit out of time, sit with the Lord, ask Him, God, show me the sin areas that you are revealing, that you want me to lay down, that you want me to walk away from. Um, And when we do, we're also extending our our hand out. We're coming to the Lord and and giving him an opportunity that he can continue to transform us in our life. Harrison. Yeah, I love the songs that we sang this morning and David even alluded to in his message, just the idea of letting go of those chains. I think that causes us for a response. Like it's part of this, what we're talking about is like, I need to respond to what the Lord is saying, to what he's showing me. And so I just encourage you to respond somehow, let go of those chains, however that would be for you, whether it's saying a prayer out loud, telling someone you're sitting next to, writing someone, writing someone on staff here, whatever that may be. Sometimes just the act of responding is powerful and allows you maybe to make that shift that you need. So I just want to encourage you with that today and um, blessings. 
All right. Thank you guys so much for joining. If you would like someone to be praying with you uh, through these things, uh, on Facebook, in the comments below, you'll see a prayer card link. Click on that link. We'll get in touch with you. We'd love to pray with you and, and walk alongside you uh, through any of the things that the Lord is bringing um, up to your heart in this time and through this passage. So, so glad you guys were able to join, and I uh, hope you guys have a great day.